There are many traps that uh, we can fall into in life. Uh, one of the ones I frequently see people fall into and have been known to fall into myself is the trap of judging a book by its cover. Uh, not, not in regards to books necessarily, but uh, metaphorically. Uh, who here has ever uh, fallen into that trap of uh, seeing the bling, thinking something's really shiny, I really want that because how good it is or good looking? Yeah? What did you do? What, what was the book and what was the cover? Okay, fair enough. What about in the rest of life? Uh, anyone got examples of uh, making bad choices based on externals rather than uh, the thing inside of true value? Uh, anyone? Uh, you've gone, I really want that thing because it's so amazing and it's let you down. Yeah, <laughs> you did? Uh, pretty horse. Uh, uh-huh. Uh, Alison bought a good-looking Palomino horse that had been drugged up to the eyeballs because of its arthritis and was unrideable uh, and had to get rid of it straight away. I think it's an easy strap to fall into buying cars, uh, hiring staff, uh, even, even trying to find... <laughs> yeah. Uh, even trying to find that special someone, you know. I uh, think, yeah, Rowan. I bought a game, turned out to be terrible, not interesting at all. I've done that one too, yeah, <laughs> more than once, yeah. <laughs> Uh, some of it, you know, we look at the external package, we think how good it looks, how good they look, and some of us never get beyond that in life. Uh, and we might get lucky sometimes and find something of value underneath the shiny exterior, but other times we get exactly what we deserve for being so shallow. Uh, like a friend of mine who uh, bought a hot muscle car from the US, uh, had it shipped over here, I think it was a Viper, um, joy in his heart that he had this car that was unavailable in Australia, had it converted to right-hand drive uh, and uh, uh, drove it out of the parking lot you know, from the garage with a tank full of petrol, got 10 kilometres down the road before it ran out of fuel. Turned out that the petrol tank had been replaced with a compartment for running drugs across the Mexican border. Um, and it only had a tiny 10-litre fuel tank, just enough to get across the border and get to the petrol station over there. Now, now those things really matter in life, don't they? Um, you hear horror stories like that and you think, I know better. That would never happen to me. But the sad reality is we often judge by externals, by things that don't really matter in the end, even important spiritual things like our churches. And our church leaders, uh, we make up our minds by the bling, by things that do not fundamentally matter rather than going to the heart often. That reality hit me a few years ago when I was changing church 
uh, jobs. Uh, at one interview, I was asked a question that I've never been asked before or since, uh, which brought it home to me. Here's the question that the, the interview panel, if you ever, you know, for those who are nominated for the future, uh, say a newcomer comes to church one day and uh, comes up to you as the minister and says, well, what's his whole Christianity thing about anyway? What would you say? Now, I think I gave a pretty good answer, but yeah, but it struck me that's a pretty good question to ask a potential church minister, isn't it? So why isn't that a standard interview question for ministers? Why is that something that would almost never be asked? Could you explain the gospel to us? Um, well, I think, one, because we assume a lot of things. Oh, you've been to Bible college. Of course you'd be able to do that. You've been to Moore College. Ooh. Yeah, you've been to the best in the world. You must be okay. But also because what we're looking for and what we're so easily impressed by are other things. A deep voice, a good interview technique, resume length, connection to preaching heroes, and so on. The kind of things that the super apostles who'd come to Corinth had in abundance. They were well-connected, well-groomed, stylish, sophisticated, and highly recommended. People were impressed by them, and they were impressive. And this Paul guy, well, he claims he's got such a glorious ministry, more glorious, if you were here last week in chapter 3, more glorious even that of Moses, whose face shone with the glory of God every time he left the tent of meeting. He had to put a hood over his face so that people wouldn't be shocked by the glow. So where's the evidence that your ministry is better than that, Paul? You know, you're beaten, you're bashed, you've got poor interpersonal skills, uh, you know, you're a difficult guy to work with, just ask Barnabas after whom this church is named, right? Uh, big falling out, Barnabas was the nice guy, and Paul just said, no, we're not having your cousin, he's, he's a loser, we don't want him on the team. Um, uh, doesn't keep his promises, apparently, he hasn't shown up when he, when he said he would, and he's preaching, I'll tell you what, it is so boring, Paul's preaching was so boring, people fell asleep sitting on a window on a multi-storey building and fell out and fell to death, right? I can say no one has ever died during my preaching of boredom. Uh, that makes me maybe one step up, I don't know, but uh, he was that dull. There you go. People literally died during his preaching. Now, he raised them from the dead afterwards, but that's uh, that's another story. But, but you know... He's got nothing, you know, you know, unlike us super apostles, ding, you know, kind of. How do you tell who's really got the goods? Whose ministry is authentic? Because 2 Corinthians is really Paul's defense. This is what authentic Christian ministry is and what it's like, uh, whether you're doing it up the front, whether you're doing some sort of other ministry and serving in some other capacity. Uh, I mean, as you grow in maturity in Christ, you, you learn that life really should be about serving, uh, serving the Lord. Uh, and all of us need help to work out who to listen to in a world where different churches and different teachers are saying different things and promoting very different versions of Christianity so that we'll not be taken in by someone false who won't lead us to Christ but will lead us away. So what is authentic Christian ministry? We're up to chapter 4 and we've seen some aspects of already, but Paul starts chapter 4 with a statement of fact about what authentic Christian ministers do not do. What is the opposite? Well, chapter 4 and verse 1, if you're following along in the Pew Bible there, or if you brought your own. He says, Therefore, 
Since through God's mercy we have this ministry, we do not lose heart. What don't we do? We don't lose heart. Or in other translations, we don't give up. Or we don't despair. Mind you, I think it'd be pretty easy to lose heart and give up if you went through some of the things Paul did, which he's going to describe later in the letter in several places. Trials, persecutions, hated, beaten. He got shipwrecked a couple of times, uh, arrested. Uh, he got whipped, uh, flogged by Roman flogging uh, several times. Uh, and uh, he was now having issues with the Christians in churches he planted, uh, seeing them fight with each other, seeing them fight with him, be seduced by false teaching, uh, lose confidence in his apostleship and, and even his gospel. That might make what you want to pack it in, right? But that is precisely what Paul does not do. He says we won't give up, we won't despair, we won't stop and lose heart. Why won't he? Well, for two reasons. Firstly, because of everything he's just explained in chapter 3. Uh, well, I mean, it should go without saying, but that's what the therefore is there for. Uh, for those who um, uh, need to understand, when you read books, you see the word therefore, it means there's an argument. Something's happened beforehand, therefore this thing. So what you've got to ask every time you see a therefore, what's it there for? And that's right. Uh and the answer in this case is because despite all appearances, despite how inglorious Paul's ministry seems, it is in fact the most glorious ministry that has ever been undertaken in the history of the world. Remember last week, Moses might have had a shiny face, um, but impressive as it was, his ministry only brought condemnation. How many people left Israel, uh, Egypt with Moses to head to the promised land. Uh, anyone know? Ballpark it? Uh, more than 60,000? Uh, yeah, in the book of Numbers, they count 600,000 600, adult men um, uh, who are qualified to fight in the army. So we're probably talking more than a million people left Egypt in captivity with Moses. How many of them entered the promised land? Two, Joshua and his mate Caleb. There you go. The two spies who stood against all the rest of the spies and all the rest of the people and said, we should just go in and take it. You know, God's with us. And they went, well, it looks too scary. Uh, and they all died in the wilderness. So Moses' ministry, he might have had a glowing face, but everyone died. And the, the ministry of the covenant of law which Moses brought only brought condemnation. Paul's ministry, on the other hand, well, it brings something so much more glorious because it actually saves people. It brings freedom and it brings life. So that's the first reason he keeps going and he won't give up because this ministry is the really glorious ministry. But there's another reason he keeps going. That is because being given this ministry of the gospel was in fact the incredible mercy of God to Paul. Now, that's a bit weird, isn't it? Particularly when you're going to get beaten and bashed for it. So there, though, in, in the first sentence, therefore, since through God's mercy we have this ministry, we do not lose heart. Why is it God's mercy to Paul to, to be in a position where, you know, he's disliked and hated and all the rest? Well, you remember what Paul was before all this, before he was a Christian? 
He was a vicious, violent psychopath. He was the great persecutor of the Christians. He went from house to house, dragging him off to prison, uh, complicit in the murder of many. Uh, the first Christian martyr, Stephen, he was standing there holding everyone's cloaks while they murdered him. Um, and yet God had tremendous mercy on him, not destroying him where he stood, as he rightly should, uh, not only forbearing from judgment, not only kindly granting Paul safety in the cross of Jesus Christ, and lovingly restoring and remaking him as his child. Um, but as part of that kindness, God gave him this incredible ministry of glory to save other lives from the fires of hell, just as he himself had been saved. That is, it's actually the blessing of God to be able to serve. Now, that is totally countercultural, isn't it? Right, it's the opposite of how the world thinks. Who are the glorious people? Well, they're the ones who are served not the ones who are serving, right? Now, that's as countercultural today as it was back then. It's every age, right? James and John had the same problem. Jesus' disciples are travelling with him. Uh, on one occasion, they sidled up to Jesus. On another occasion, they sent their mum to do the dirty work. Uh, <laughs> uh, Jesus, in your kingdom, in glory, can we sit at your right and left? We want the positions of power. We want to be noticed. We want to be all that. What does Jesus say to them and to mum? Well, that's how the Gentiles do it. That's how the world works. Not so in the kingdom of God. Whoever wants to be great among you must be your servant. Right? For the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. The greatest person in the kingdom of God is Jesus. And he came to serve. It is glorious thing. To serve. It's totally countercultural, but it's the blessing of God to be able to serve. It is more blessed, says Jesus, to give than to receive. That is weird, isn't it? It's totally opposite of what we're brought up and taught and just the, the vibe of our community. But if you understand that the ministry of the gospel is so glorious and powerful, even better than that of Moses, and that you understand that you only have it through God's generous, overwhelming, and outrageous mercy to you, then you won't give up. And you won't lose heart and you won't despair. But what would it look like to lose heart? What, what's the opposite? Well, he describes it here. This would be the opposite thing. If I did give up, this is what it would look like. He says, verse 2, Rather, we have renounced secret and shameful ways. We do not use deception and nor do we distort the word of God. On the contrary, by setting forth the truth plainly, we commend ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. Straight talking. That's what you do when you've understood the power of God at work in the gospel. That's when you do, what you do when you know it's by God's mercy you have this ministry. You don't do it to line your own pockets. You don't resort to underhanded tactics. And you don't twist the message. Because that would be giving up. That would be losing heart. Why does Paul raise those things as an issue? Well, it could be he's been accused of doing them, he's defending So I think it's because they are precisely the very things that he sees the false teachers who've come to Corinth doing, these super apostles, the ones who are preaching power and success and victory in the Christian life, the ones who he says in chapter 2, verse 17, market God's message for profit. They are the peddlers of the word of God, right? 
See, there's a great temptation you face in any sort of Christian ministry or leadership or service, whether it's upfront paid in a church, whether you're a bishop, whether you're a missionary, whether you're you know, serving in Sunday school or a scripture teacher. There's great temptation, especially if things aren't going so well and others seem to be doing better, that you become jealous. Or if you want your ministry to, to demonstrate glory and power in more impressive ways than seems to be happening, you know, why aren't people falling over themselves to become Christians? Or, or if you're out to make money from Christian ministry, which is entirely possible to do, uh, or if you want to be the hot Christian celebrity, or you just want to be well-loved by and well-liked by everyone else in the congregation, you'll be sorely tempted to engage in what he says are secret and shameful ways to use deception and distort God's message. Secret and shameful ways. Let me give you some examples. And now, the examples I've got are from people in full-time ministry because they're the most noticeable. You can go and check out the facts and, and see them. Uh, but things like fudging the numbers on your church attendance books, right? Uh, uh, an Anglican example, you know, the, every church in the diocese has to submit its annual statistics uh, of attendance figures and its offertory, right, um, to the diocese, you know, for kind of future planning and how we're going and all that kind of thing, right? It, it is very interesting because those numbers get reported in the synod books. Uh, and I've been to some of those churches, and maybe you visit those. If you read the numbers in there of the average attendance at many of these churches that report, you would think maybe they were canting hands and feet rather than heads, all right? Uh, uh, one uh, church, the um, the senior minister didn't go to one of the congregations, uh, never went, uh, and would ask how it's going every week, to which the person said, oh, it's thriving. It's, you know, there's about 100 people there at this night service. Uh, but every time one of the other assistant ministers went, he said, there's like 15 people. And like, oh, and he, and he said, oh, I thought you said there was 100. Oh, no, 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 sorry, it's just a bad week. There's a special event on. But then it happened the next time, and it happened the next time. And you're like, what, why is he lying to the boss? <laughs> like, who, who is it impressing? Or there was a public speech a couple of years ago. I, if you want to know who, I can tell you afterwards. You know, but televised across the nation, a, a big Christian meeting on a big platform, big church. And uh, during the sermon... Uh, the minister says 400 people a week are saved and become Christian in this building and thousands more across the nations every Sunday. I heard that and went, 400, right, a week. 50 weeks a year, we'll give them two weeks where it didn't happen, right? 50 times 400 is 20,000 people. 20,000 people a year getting saved, that would be wonderful. Like, that would be tremendous if that was actually happening, right? But in that church, and was that church growing 20,000 people, you know, each year? No way. Its attendance figures were static, right? Now, maybe 20,000 people every week were, were from there going into every other church. Has the church numbers growing 20,000 a year in the, in the area, in the city? No way. It's just bull, right? Why say that? Because it sounds impressive, right? It makes people think, this is wonderful. I want to be part of that. Um, uh, there's, there's one, you know, fudging your numbers. You could claim things greater for yourselves than are true. You could put others down to build yourself up. 
You can use manipulative music to tug at the heartstrings. Did you know that if the offertory music, this is statistically proven, if the offertory music is a fast song, the offertory will be bigger on that day. Right? What do you do with that information if you know it? All right? We're doing a See Him Coming as our offertory song, all right? Do you go, well, that's just worldly wisdom and you do it, or do you say, you know what, we'll go with the low number and we'll play the slowest possible song because we're manipulating people once we know that information. What do you do? You know, or you don't tell the band and you just let them choose and then you're not manipulating anyone, they're just picking whatever song they want, right? Bad luck, I've told you now. (laughs) Um, You can get your mates to put glowing reviews on the back of your books, like this one, which is written by a not bad guy, but this is the greatest thing ever, your Christian life will never be the same. That's a big claim, right? Preaching shamefully, I was visiting another church some years ago. The sermon was on Gideon in the book of Judges. Uh, and the preacher handed out a slip of paper to everyone in the uh, bulletin with a picture of a sword on it uh, with a quote from the passage. The quote is, the sword of the Lord and the sword of Gideon, where Gideon stands up and he's kind of, yeah, come on, who's with me? Right, the sword of the Lord and the sword of Gideon, and they charge down the hill and kill everyone. Uh, but instead of Gideon on this picture, it was the sword of the Lord and the sword of dot, dot, dot. Okay, and he said in the talk, you write your name on the dotted line. It's the sword of Lord and the sword of June, or the sword of Lord and the sword of Beryl, uh, or whatever. And you give back that picture of the sword with your name on it, with a check for one hundred sixty-six dollars and sixty-seven cents, uh, or with a credit card payment for the same amount. Then we'll hang your sword with your name on it on the back wall of church. Um, and maybe, maybe you want two swords. Maybe you've got a Christian business. Maybe, maybe you want to plug that. Ten swords. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And you're like, it, it's shameful. It's playing on people's pride, isn't it? Right? I'm all for asking for money for ministry and stuff, but you know, do it so you look good. Uh, it's playing on pride. It's shameful. Then there's faking miracles. There's selling merchandise. There's promising things that are just not true. Uh, went to a Catholic church with a Catholic evangelist who said, buy my rosary, my specially blessed rosary beads afterwards. Give them even to a non-Catholic and get them to say it once with these rosary beads. They will be healed from any addiction or uh, problem in their life. It's a lie, right? And you had to buy them, Right? Or just giving people what their itching ears want to hear, which is the most common thing. All right? Uh, twisting this bit of scripture, twisting that bit of scripture, you know, promising things that aren't true or leaving out the hard bits, which is what the evangelifishers, I like to call them, do. Right? They call themselves evangelical, but they never say hard things. They're spineless. They only speak about the positive, never the negative, who don't mention hell in a sermon. And who never call anyone to account or say anything's wrong because people might get offended and leave. They're all distorting the word of God. They're all distorting God's message because they've lost heart. They've lost confidence. And they think they can have a ministry that is more glorious than that which God gives. He says, rather, we've renounced secret and shameful ways. We do not use deception nor do we distort the word of God. On the contrary, by setting forth the truth plainly, we commend ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. 
When you understand Jesus' cross, when you understand that Jesus is going to return to judge the living and the dead, when you understand there is hell and there is heaven, and Jesus is the only way out of one and be safe for the other, you commend yourself in people's sight and in God's sight by talking straight, by not mucking around, by taking his message seriously. This is the word of God that we've got to communicate. This is what he's got to say to you. This is what, through you, he's got to say to our city. This is what he's got to say to our world. This is the truth, and this is how God sets people free. And if people don't respond all the time, it's not because the message is weak. It's not because your ministry isn't God's ministry. It's because of something else. It's because of something supernatural. You see, there's a war going on that you cannot see with human eyes. It's in verse 3. He says, But if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing, because in their case the God of this age has blinded the minds of the unbelievers so they cannot see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Satan hates the truth. And he has blinded the minds of unbelievers with his lies. How did Adam and Eve end up under God's terrible curse? Believing the devil's lies. Blinded by thoughts of greatness and self-sufficiency that he spoke to them. Blinded by the lust for power that he put in their hearts. Had, that, had he put it in their hearts through their ears. And Satan still speaks that same lie and the people of this world are blind because of it. They are veiled. That they've had the wool pulled over their eyes. And unless God lifts the veil, unless God extends his hand in power and in mercy and opens blind hearts, they will never see. You don't need some shortcut. There's no magic ministry silver bullet that if you just get the right program, have the right style, the right vibe, the right, be cooler, slicker, funkier, you know, have, you know, um, more sophisticated technology in your church meetings and you look more impressive in the media and that your ministry is going to be more successful. People are spiritually blind and none of those will break the spiritual blindness. Only God can switch the lights on and he does it by his glorious gospel. The gospel is glorious because it's about the glorious one, Jesus. And so that's who we preach, right? That's who authentic Christian ministry is all about. It's about Jesus and not about the preacher or the youth group leader or the person. See, verse 5, for we are proclaiming, uh, we're not proclaiming ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord and ourselves as your servants. Well, that's a weak translation because they're too embarrassed to translate it truly. We ourselves as your slaves because of Jesus. That's If you're in Christian ministry, you are a slave. And it's a wonderful thing because you're a slave to the Lord and you're doing things for people, benefit. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness has gone, shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of God's glory in the face of Jesus Christ. Jesus is Lord. And when someone receives that and believes it and comes to him, that breaking of the blindness in their lives is done by the same power of God by which he created the universe. That, that tells you how strong Satan's bind is, isn't it? 
But that's how great a power that you wield in the gospel. That God can switch the lights on and bring someone from utter darkness, from slavery to the devil's lies, bring someone from the brink of hell into eternal life. It is no small thing when someone turns to Christ. It is a miracle. It's not something to just go, well, this happens all the time and who cares, it's boring or you know, how great our church is. It is God's awesome universe creating power at work. And yet if you judge by appearances, if you judge by books' covers, it doesn't seem like very much. It seems actually pretty lame. Oh, well done, God. You convince someone who's obviously weak-minded and easily led to be a convert. Yay, woohoo for you. <laughs> Bully for you. Um, yeah, they obviously needed a psychological crutch, so yeah, oh, it seems pathetic. Surely God should display his glory in greater ways than that. If God would just bring a sign, if God would just maybe make the sun stop moving for a day, as he did once in the Old Testament, or on another occasion, if he just would make the sun go backwards for an hour, oh, people would know this is the truth. They'd all give their lives to Christ. Um, if, he, if he just swallowed up the Middle East with an earthquake, you know, we would know for sure, right, that Islam was wrong and Christianity was right. <laughs> if he just did some miracles on stage while I was preaching, then, then there'd be people lining up to come to Barney's, right? <laughs> yeah. you know, it'd be real numbers of comments. But it doesn't work like that. In fact, be assured, if any of those things happened, no one would be any closer to believing in Jesus. Now, God can do those things, not saying that, um, but they just want another sign to be sure because that's what happened to Jesus. One day he fed 5,000 people miraculously from two loaves of bread and five fishes. And what did they ask for afterwards? They said, well, we're not really sure about you. Could you give us another sign? We want dinner too. <laughs> and breakfast tomorrow would be pretty handy because we're going to sleep out here. You know? um, uh, Jesus tells the parable of Lazarus and the rich man, right? And they both die. And one goes to hell, one goes to heaven. Uh, and at the, the end of it, the rich guy says, well, just, just... Send someone back from the dead and then my relatives will know. And Jesus said, they will not believe even if someone rose from the dead. Right? That is not going to make people believers. Right? They just want another sign to be sure. You've got to see behind the facade. You've got to read the book, not just the cover, to see God at work. God is powerful and his power works when he switches the light on, when he lifts the veil and when he lights the light of his glory in a darkened heart of a person dead in sin, facing damnation, and he brings them out of that to life in Christ. And he does it through the gospel. As one person shares with another the life-saving work of Jesus. And because of all this, because authentic Christian ministry is about the plain speaking of the truth and not deception and shows, it means that the people who God uses to do this ministry don't have to be all that impressive. In fact, they're often very unimpressive people. Weak, fragile, broken, shabby, unimpressive, remarkably unremarkable Average people who don't look anything much to the world and who never will. 
the person who walked with you through the hard times and encouraged you to be faithful to God's word when you really didn't want to be and they wouldn't let you off the hook. Or the little old lady, because that's who most of them are, except for Mick Dinajic. Uh He's not a little old lady. I'll let you work out what he's not. Uh, who, who teaches scripture and impacts hundreds, if not thousands of lives in ways that she may never see. It's the faithful person who prayed for you, who invited you, who maybe even pestered you <laughs> into coming to church. They are not the world beaters, but their ministry is a powerful and wonderful things in God's hands. Generous, genuine, servant-hearted people who love Jesus and just want others to love him too. And, and Paul illustrates it in one of the most vivid and incredible ways as he talks about what true Christian servants and ministers are and how they should regard themselves. In fact, how we should all regard ourselves. It's in verse 7. He says, but we have this treasure, this glorious treasure in jars of clay to show that this all-surpassing power is from God and it's not from us. The picture of this priceless treasure, I mean, think of, you know, that, that huge ruby on the queen's crown, on the crown jewels, you know, the, or a huge nugget of gold or a, a pearl so giant it was of immeasurable value. But, but imagine having one of those and keeping it in a cheap, disposable, unremarkable Chinese takeaway container, <laughs> right? Or, or like a chip clay pot like uh, the, this one here. Uh, Lynette Goddard came to boys group uh, a couple of years ago and taught us how to throw pots. There you go. That's my one. There you go. You can see how classy it is. You can see the chips and it's damaged and uh, uh, I love it, right? Um, but it's nothing to anyone. Um, that's what we're like. What, what's the treasure that's within? Well, the gospel, that's the treasure. Christ crucified. But it's carried by unremarkable people like that. Paul himself, the apostle, is a clay pot. God puts this gospel through which he works his incredible universe-creating power in people like Paul and like you, like us, to carry around the world. Why would God put the greatest treasure in something like that? Seems a bit irresponsible, doesn't it? A bit dumb. Surely the greatest treasure deserves the greatest showcase. That's not how to think. God does it this way to show the extraordinary powers from him and it's not from us. Just think, if you put the treasure in a beautiful, ornate, gold and jewel-encrusted box, people might get confused about what the treasure actually is. Is it the box or is it the thing in the box? What's worth more? And that's why God gives his precious gospel to unimpressive people. People like you, people like me, people like Paul. And Paul goes on to show just how big a clay pot he really is. He says, you want to criticize me because I'm weak? Absolutely, bring it on. That's exactly what I am. I am a clay pot and that's exactly what I'm like. Have a good look at me, verse 8. He says, we're hard pressed on every side. 
but not crushed. We're perplexed, but not in despair. Persecuted, but not abandoned. Struck down, but not destroyed. Yes, that's what I am. I am like a, I'm beaten. I am broken. I am fragile. Yes, I'm pressured on every side. I am persecuted. I am struck down. That doesn't sound like much fun, does it? <laughs> right? Want to put yourselves in that position? But it's always qualified. Pressured in every way, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not in despair. Persecuted, but not abandoned. Struck down, but not destroyed. The pot may be weak. It may be troubled. It may be concerned. It may be perplexed. But it never caves in because of what's on the inside. Verse 10, we always carry around in our body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus might be revealed in our body. For we who are alive always are being given over to death for Jesus' sake so that his life may be revealed in our mortal body. So then death is at work in us, but life is at work in you who we share it all with. You Corinthians, you're being told that we are nothing to look at the fact that we're bashed and beaten and conclude it's because God's not with us. But that's precisely the opposite. God is doing his work. He is doing his miraculous, powerful, universe-creating, life-saving work through these very things that they point to as evidence against it. You think, Corinthians, just, just think for a moment, how did the gospel come to you? Is it... Is it because we came in pomp and ceremony? No, it's because we kept going through the trials. If you read through the book of Acts, they heard about Jesus because in the town before, they picked themselves off the ground and went again. And the town before that, they, they, you know, he was dumped, thought dead outside of one city. And he went, revived in the cool of the day and walked back in and started going again and got kicked out again and yeah they were beaten and went to the next town and the next town the next town the next country and they arrived in Corinth and when we got to you we had the same trouble from your fellow citizens there remember that's how God's gospel is going out into the world by God giving over his servants to death by his preachers by his ministers by his missionaries by his you know, lay leaders, by the volunteers who work in, you know, the Sunday school class, by, by who are prepared to risk life and limb, who are prepared to put up with any discomfort, who are prepared to put up with your rotten kids and my rotten kids, you know, <laughs> put up with any disgrace, any suffering, who will put up with any trouble, who will keep going and not give up when things get hard because they know that the absolute treasure that they hold is what people need. The only thing which can save them. The only thing by which God does his powerful work. Verse 13, And since we have the same spirit of faith in keeping with what is written, I believed and therefore I spoke. If you are a believer, you will speak. I believe, therefore I spoke. We also believe and therefore speak. We know that the one who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and present us with you. Indeed, everything's for your benefit. So the grace extended through more and more people may cause thanksgiving to increase to God's glory. See, that's what it's all for. That's what life's all about. That's what we hope for. What we aim for, we aim for God and his glory. It's for people so that they might know him and glorify him. That's God's greatest good. That's their greatest good. And actually, it's our greatest good and glory. And so verse 16, Therefore, just as he said in the first sentence of the chapter, Therefore, we do not lose heart. Though outwardly we're wasting away, 
yet inwardly we're being renewed day by day. For our light and momentary troubles Our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. So we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but on what is unseen. For what is seen is temporary, but what is seen, uh, unseen is eternal. I know this has been a tough year for many of our congregation. It's been a tough few years for some of us. There are a lot of sadnesses and I am not trying to make light of them and Paul is not trying to make light of them. I mean, he's gone through as much, if not worse. And he can say this. It's a pretty weird view of life, isn't it? When beatings and bashings, nearly being killed many times over, are just light and momentary troubles. That's if I stub my toe. Ah, oh, well. <laughs> Light and momentary trouble. But that's all it is. Whatever you are going through, it is a light and momentary trouble, even if it's a heavier burden than what I currently have to bear. That's all it is. It's nothing compared to the glory which is to come. Glory upon glory. But you can't look at the cover of the book and conclude that. You can't judge by the external circumstances. You can't just go by the hot-looking car, which in fact has no petrol tank. You've got to stop looking at what is seen and start looking at what is unseen, but which is nevertheless completely real and which will last into eternity. You've got to have your eyes fixed on the prize. You have your eyes fixed on God's overwhelming glory, which he invites you and he invites others to share in and enjoy and embrace and delight in for eternity. Didn't know how to end, so I've written down four diagnostic questions to reflect on. Have you lost heart and given up on the gospel? Are your eyes on the prize or are they focused elsewhere? Have you understood there is nothing greater in this world than serving God and his gospel despite appearances of difficulty and trouble and it's a bit of work? There's nothing greater. Are you aware that you are a clay pot and the great treasure is within? Are you a clay pot with this great treasure within it? Father, these are amazing, challenging, striking, comforting uh, and humbling words. We thank you that you are the glorious one that your gospel is uh, of the glory of Christ and saves lives and it's the kind of power by which you created the universe when someone believes it. Help us to treasure that above anything else. For those of our friends here who are 
grieving and struggling and doing it tough. We do pray that you would ease their troubles, you would comfort them. But we pray, please, that all of us would put into perspective the things of this world in the light of the glories to come. And we would know that serving you, holding on, trusting you, proclaiming you is worth it because that is glorious. And we're waiting for that day. We pray that you would bring it soon. We pray that you would come, Lord Jesus, come. And Father, while ever he is absent, help us to remember we are but clay pots with this glorious treasure within. Amen.